bear with me a bit. Um, this is going to be great. Your head's going to spin, but it's going to be awesome. Um, and uh, I, love, I love when we get the chance to kind of go deeper and at the same time see how we fit into that picture. We're going to read from John chapter 8, verses 30 through 59. Um, had 31 in your bulletin, but we're going to start at verse 30. So you can follow along if you have a Bible or you can watch the screen. Um, John chapter 8, verses 30. As he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham, offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham were your father. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I come not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that these words would have a place in us. That's what you said. Because they didn't know you, your word had no place in them. It's the Son who sets us free and enables us to hear. It's your Spirit. And so, God, we pray that you'd move now and open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. That our words would not, that your words would not fall in empty, void ears, but would take root in us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're in a series right now called Something New Has Come. Looking through the Gospel of John, and every week we're taking a look at something with unique significance to a Jewish religious culture and showing how Jesus reshapes its meaning around himself. And this week we're continuing through a dialogue that took place on the last night at the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And on this night, Jesus had just identified himself with one of the major ceremonies that took place during that feast. You see, every night, they would light up these huge flaming candelabra torches that would give light to the entire city of Jerusalem. And these lights reminded the people of how God had rescued his people out of slavery from Egypt and had brought them through the wilderness in a pillar of fire and cloud and had dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, uh, in, in this great glorious fire and cloud. So on the last night, when the lights had gone out, and the torches are no longer lit, Jesus stood up and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Essentially, making the claim, I'm the one who will deliver you out of slavery. I'm the pillar of fire that will lead you through darkness and through the desert. I am the very presence of God dwelling among his people. Now, all this we covered last week, so if you weren't here, you can go back online and listen to it. But what follows is an argument with the Pharisees. And over the course of this argument, a number of bystanders begin to go, yeah, yeah, we believe this guy. Yeah, I think he's on to something. We're with you. And they began to believe in him. And now this dialogue that we just read is Jesus addressing those Jews who had believed him, who had believed what he said, believed in him. And, and that was something that I found really troubling and disturbing this week, the last couple of weeks, as I wrestled with this passage. Because he had won them over. Okay? They were on his team. They were ready to sign up. You know, light of the world, great. Son of man, great. The great I am, we believe it. And then he starts talking to them. And things start going downhill. And by the end of the conversation, they are about to try to kill him. I'm thinking, Jesus, this is not a good PR strategy. This is terrible. What are you doing? And imagine being one of his apostles. Imagine standing there, listening as as Jesus wins this argument, and they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, look at him showing up those religious elitists. Look at him. Hey, we're with this guy. This is good. They're getting behind him. And then he starts saying some of the most outlandish, provocative, politically incorrect stuff. And if you were one of his apostles who were like, you're representing him, you've been like along with him up to this point, and then you're going, did he just say what I think he said? 
And, and Jesus, maybe you should tone it down a few notches. You know, maybe you've been in an, ex- an experience where you've been with someone who you were associated with as a friend, and they're starting to interact with someone else. And as they're doing that, you're going, oh, man. And you start, like, stepping a couple steps away and going, I hope I'm not associated with this person right now. This is not the way you get people to come to church. This is not the way you grow a congregation. But as I examine this story more deeply, I began to realize that every bit of what Jesus did here was absolutely intentional and absolutely calculated. Because Jesus understood something. He understood that in order to actually set people free, he would have to truly convince them that they are slaves to their sin. And we would have to be convinced that our judgment is flawed and we're blind. And we would have to be convinced that our justice is broken. And the only way to be convinced of this is to actually manifest it in us, to draw it out of us, to cause us to manifest our slavery to sin and prove him right. To cause us to reveal our blind judgment and our injustice. And the most crazy thing about the story is that he did this with no regard to self-preservation or personal glory. He provoked us in order to allow himself to become the brunt of our sin, our misjudgment, our injustice, so that we would finally see that it's true. And only when we have exhausted our sin upon the Son can the Son set us free. Only when we've exhausted our sin upon the Son can the Son set us free. And that is what Jesus offers. They believed in him, but then he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Thus begins the downward spiral. Why? What's so bad about offering freedom? Well, he's insinuating that you've got to be set free from something. That means he's insinuating you're a slave to something. And the tables turn because Jesus is starting to get personal. And that's the main message of today, is that you can believe in Jesus without really believing Jesus. We can say, I believe. It's true. I'll sign up. Sign me on. Jesus is my boy. I'm on his team. And yet not let Jesus get personal with us. And my hope today is that we would all take a good look at our hearts. That we'd all take a good look inside our own lives and ask the question, are we letting Jesus get personal with us? Or are we just waving the banner? To illustrate this a little bit, there's a man named Charles Blondin who became famous as a tightrope walker. He was the first man to successfully walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. You might have heard this story before because preachers love to use it as an illustration about faith. It's a true story, but there's some variance in the details. So, this is more or less true. 
He walked across Niagara Falls several times, each time with a different daring feat. Once in a sack, once on stilts, on a bicycle, in the dark, blindfolded. One time he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet in the middle of the tightrope. Now a large crowd gathered from America and Canada all to see this incredible achievement. And it's said that he got them so revved up that their applause and cheering was louder than the thunder of the falls themselves. At one point, he was pedaling a wheelbarrow full of potatoes across. And when he got to the other side, he turned to the crowd and he, with a proposition. He said, do you believe that I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? And they all said, yes, we believe. And one version of the story that I heard said that he pushed it a little farther. He said, do you really believe that I am capable of taking someone's life in my hands and actually getting them across this tightrope to the other side of Niagara Falls. And they all cheered louder and they said, we believe it. There's no one like you. You are capable of it. You can do anything. And he had them. And you know where this is going. He said, okay, who's going to be my first volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? Dead silence. To our knowledge, nobody volunteered. Now, to be historically accurate, at another time, he did actually carry his manager across on his back at one point. But how much did the crowd really believe in Charles Blondin when it got personal? And truth be told, there's no way I would have gotten in that wheelbarrow either, because becoming a source of entertainment isn't worth dying, in my opinion. But sometimes I think we treat Jesus as an entertainer, or maybe more poignantly, like a political figure. We go to church, we listen, we believe in Jesus, he's our guy, we're in his camp, we support the campaign, we send money, we wave the flags. Now there are a lot of camps today. It's interesting, we live in this time in history with probably the greatest degrees of polarization our country, our world has ever seen. We, have, we live in a time with the greatest degree of intercommunication and globalization and the greatest degrees of division. There are camps for everything. There's the Republicans, there's the Democrats, the conservatives, the liberals, the progressives, the evangelicals, LGBTQ, sacred versus secular, young earth, old earth, flat earth. And we find our heroes and we pit them against each other from camp to camp, right? But do we let him get personal? We say, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm in your camp. I'll follow you. And then he turns to us and he says, great. Are you ready to be set free from your slavery to sin? And we say, well, hold on a second. I'm not, I'm not a slave, Now, when I think slave, I I think, you know, like destitute alcoholic, someone on the street, someone who's an addict or, you know, a literal slave maybe. Look, I mean, I've, I've, I've got some achievements. I own a house. I'm out of debt. I'm not a slave. This is for the other camp. Okay, you, well, this message is for them, not me. I'm with you, right? I'm, I'm where you're at. 
They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say, you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I think that's another allusion to the Feast of Tabernacles meaning because the book of Exodus opens with God's people in the house of slavery and ends in the house of freedom, ends with them building a house, a tabernacle for God and his spirit. They go from one house to another. They're freed and The pillar sets them free. The light, the fire sets them free. And so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed, he says. He says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I've heard from my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. So the question becomes, whose house are you in? And the answer is, whose father is your, or who is your father? What father are you listening to? And Jesus is going to prove that these people are in the wrong house, the house they don't think that they're in, by predicting and even drawing them into a place where they manifest their slavery to sin by trying to kill him. Now, I want to get underneath this so that we don't try to escape it or excuse ourselves from it. This is not just one group of people taking pride in their ancestral heritage. This is our human condition. Because when Jesus gets personal, it can be a bit threatening. Why? Because our own personal glory is suddenly called into question. We get defensive. I'm going to go down a rabbit trail that's not really a rabbit trail. You'll see how it really plays itself out. But I want to take some time to get underneath this. Because they have a peculiar response. We're Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And anyone knows who knows the story that Abraham's descendants were enslaved by Egypt. They were rescued. They became a nation. They were later exiled under Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Persia, now they're under Roman occupation, and anyone who knows the story is going to say, what in the world are you talking about? What planet did you come from? You've never been slaves to anyone? And it goes all the way back to the very beginning, to what God says about Abraham's descendants. Genesis 15, 4 through 6, and he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the promise that God gave to reverse the fall through the family of Abraham. What's easy to miss is that when God tells Abraham that his descendants will be as the stars, he is not only talking about numbers, but also about having the glory of the stars. And that's easy to miss when you don't understand the biblical worldview that would automatically associate stars with spiritual beings, the heavenly host, 
Because that's what the correlation is in the Old and New Testament. Stars have a correlation with the hosts of heaven, God's staff team, spiritual beings that operate under his delegated authority. Some of them in rebellion against God, and some of them under his authority. Deuteronomy 4.19 says, And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. Okay, Heavenly hosts, that always means his staff team. Okay, And be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So the points you draw from this is that the heavenly lights are at least symbolically identified with the heavenly host, God's personal staff team, that he has delegated with authority over the various nations of the earth. And two, the people are told not to be drawn to that glory. Okay? There's, Paul says there's one glory of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and there's another for the future resurrected beings that we will become someday if you're in Christ. But the glory of the stars is nothing compared to the glory of the sun. Don't be sucked into the glory of the stars. Now you go back to the creation story. Hang with me here. Genesis days one through three are all about God creating dominions. Day and night, light and dark. The waters and the skies, day two. And then the land and the seas. And then days four through six are all about God creating beings to fill those dominions and beings to rule over those dominions. And so he tells the birds and the fish to fill the skies and the seas. He tells the uh, animals and the creeping things and everything that moves on the ground to fill the land. And he tells human beings, I want you to rule and have dominion over the things that fill the dominions of the earth. But he does not tell human beings to rule over the dominion of the day and night. He tells the sun, moon, and the stars to rule over the day and the night. What does that mean? It means, uh, let me find it here, that they are to have authority over the uh, the heavenly hosts are to rule over the day and night, the seasons, and to be as signs for appointed times, days, and years. And we hear that from a non-ancient worldview, and we go, huh? Sounds like a calendar. Okay, but, but what we're talking about is the stuff that makes the universe work and the world go round. Okay, we don't get that authority and power. The heavenly beings do, that God gives them that authority too. At the end, it says God had finished the heavens and the earth, all the things that he had made, all and all of the heavenly hosts. So they're included in that creation project. And by default, if you look at the correlations, they're identified with day four. This is all crazy weird stuff. I've been learning about it the last two months, and it's fascinating. So there's a human rebellion. Mankind is not satisfied with the glory he's been given. And so he reaches for the stars. And there's a spiritual rebellion. Genesis 6 describes spiritual beings not satisfied with the glory they've been given reaching down 
coming to take wives for themselves and reproduce on the earth and have dominion over the thing they were not given dominion over. Weird story. Strange story. Remember, Revelation talks about the dragon sweeping his tail and a third of the stars come out of heaven and fall to the earth with a crash and they lose their glory in rebellion against God. Presumably, that being takes the form of a serpent and tempts Eve by saying, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you will be like Elohim. The word Elohim is very loosely defined as it's always plural unless there's the word the in front of it. It's defined as spiritual beings, lowercase g, gods, um, spiritual entities, Elohim. In Genesis 3, that I just quoted, the word the is not there. And your English translators are trying to avoid confusing you. But what it's actually saying is, what the serpent actually said to Eve is, God knows that when you take that fruit for yourself, you'll have the glory of the stars. You'll be like the gods. You'll be like the spiritual beings. Knowing good and evil, you'll have the glory that God is withholding from you. Now, whether you take that and you go, that's weird. Maybe it's kind of symbolic. Maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it's literal. Maybe I'm all good with that. Here's the key principle that I think is absolutely true. Human beings have been reaching for the stars throughout history. There is a glory that we desire that we do not have, and we want it. We flock to movie theaters because we are so drawn to our superhero movies and sci-fi thrillers that turn ordinary human beings into gods because that's what we want to claim for ourselves. We're so drawn to it. We want mastery over the universe. We want dominion over the things that we can't have. We seem to be aware that we were made for a certain glory because, in fact, what Scripture reveals is that God's ultimate intent was to give human beings that glory and dominion all along. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the Elohim, the spiritual beings, but you've given him the crown of glory and majesty and dominion over all of the works of your hands. And the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2 that that does include the, the dominion over the things that the angels and the spiritual beings have dominion over. God's intent was to give us that glory. Daniel 12 explains that at the resurrection, human beings will shine like the stars. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians when he's upset with the church because they're looking to non-Christian authorities to judge their disputes, he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? We're destined for a certain glory that we've never had. So getting back to our present story, God responds to human rebellion by calling Abraham and saying, look at the stars, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Jesus now says, you are slaves to sin, and I want to set you free. And the response is, oh, hold on a second. We're not those lower class people. We're the offspring. We're the stars. We're the glory. How can you be so blind like a stubborn child who claims to have personal glory because he belongs to the household of his 
very successful father. And yet the father is one step away from disinheriting that rebellious, repulsive son. And yet in his own depravity and slavery, he walks around with his nose up in the air and says, I'm so much better than you because I belong to the one who said, my offspring will be like the stars. That's personal glory. And that is our human condition. I'm not like them. I'm not a slave. I'm a star. (laughs) Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, but your father is the devil because you are doing what he says, what the devil say. Just take glory for yourself. Don't trust God for glory. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and unless you believe that I am, which is the name for God, you will die in your sins. And the people will say, okay, we believe. But when it gets personal, when he threatens their glory, they don't believe. Jesus says, my word finds no place in you. Therefore, You will seek to kill me, thus confirming that you are a slave to sin who needs to be set free. It says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Do you hear the words of God? Recall John chapter 3. Unless you are born of the Spirit, you cannot even see the kingdom of God when it's in your midst because our glory gets in the way. Same here. You are not born of God, set free. You cannot hear the words of God, he's saying. Instead of hearing God's words, the people turn Jesus' own accusation back on himself. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? They believe Samaritans were illegitimate Children, we're we're not children of sexual immorality. We're not illegitimate children. You are. Aren't you a Samaritan? And don't you have a demon? Aren't you under the influence of a fallen spiritual being? Right? Exactly what he said. Jesus answers, I do not have a demon. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. Jesus has said, because of sin, you are not yet like the stars. You are children of Abraham, but your actual father is the devil because you are slaves of his will, lies and murder. So now they're pointing the finger. It's kind of interesting because Samaritans, especially the Samaritan woman who had no glory of her own left to try to preserve, recognized Jesus as a Jew who was from God. And the Jews wrongfully accused Jesus of being a Samaritan who has got a demon. Jesus says, I do not seek my own glory. My father does, and he is the judge. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And my guess is that what he means is that when Abraham heard those words, so shall your offspring be, like the stars, he sees what Jesus is about to be. The truest picture of that, the most glorious picture of an exalted human being, the Son of Man, glorified by the Father. But the Jews don't really get it at that point. Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. They confirmed what Jesus had said, that they were slaves to sin. But they were unable to see and be set free because when Jesus makes it personal, they cannot set aside their claim to glory. So who is the true judge? Who is Jesus, son of God or demon-possessed? Who are the real children of Abraham? Where does glory really come from? I heard a talk on the Veritas Forum from a woman who's a clinical psychiatrist who had become a Christian in her adult years. And prior to that, she had read the Gospels and she said, this is such a tragic story. She said, because all the signs are here of insanity, which was often confused with demon possession. She's saying, here's a guy who claims to be God. He retreats into solitude periodically. He's weeping in the garden. He's in turmoil. And people don't have the understanding of this poor, broken man. And so they slay him. They murder him on a cross. But the thing that changed her mind was seeing Jesus' vindication at the resurrection, researching the evidence for the resurrection and seeing this in a completely different light. Once again, if you were a bystander hearing Jesus say these things, would you believe? Because on the cross, the verdict was in. The final vote on Jesus was cast. The arbiters of judgment and justice made their decision on Jesus. They had a hard time of it. And there's even extra biblical writings quoting Pharisees who never supported Jesus, who, acknowledge, who acknowledged this man did amazing, miraculous signs and wonders. That made it tough. Nobody questioned Jesus' miraculous abilities and what he had done. Yet, the problem they had was with the authority that he was claiming to have. And that's what got him in trouble. And so imagine being one of the apostles, Peter or John, having seen Jesus do such incredible things. The winds obeyed his voice. He raised the dead to life. How could you not be convinced by that? And then hearing him say the most outrageous things to all the wrong people, you'd start to question. Maybe he is a little nuts. You'd start to doubt. Peter denied him three times. Judas betrayed him. There's a lot of peer pressure here as the authorities are watching and scrutinizing and making their determinations. He did things and said things that we were convinced could only have come from God, yet when the human authorities cast their verdict, God was not there to defend himself. God allows the authorities to win. Justice is served. The judgment is in. Jesus is a lunatic, imposter, demon-possessed, rebel rouser who needs to be done away with, and no one stands up to this verdict. Everyone bows to it. If he were really hearing from God, wouldn't he have been rescued? Would God have allowed this to happen to him? And you'd start to realize, oh my gosh, I have been the victim of one of the greatest, 
most confusing scandals the world has ever seen. I have been thoroughly brainwashed and duped. How did this happen? How could I ever show my face in public again? How am I going to pick up the pieces? But then, on the third day, there's an empty tomb. And the women come running back and they sound hysterical. And John and Peter go running to the tomb to see. And they're looking and they're going, what is going on here? Did someone steal the body? Where is he? And John sees the grave clothes, the wrappings, still neatly folded as though a body had just passed through. And suddenly it clicks and he believes And they take the word back to the the apostles and they still don't know what to make sense of this. And then suddenly Jesus appears to them. He says, I'm not a ghost. Touch me and see. And they believe. But Thomas isn't in that room. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. They call him Doubting Thomas. But can you really blame Thomas? I mean, he's trying to get used to the idea of having been completely brainwashed for the last three years, and he shows up and everyone says, we've seen him, he's alive. He says, I'm not going back down that road. I'm not going back there again. I'm not ready for the humiliation. I'm not ready for the anxiety and the stress. I'm not ready to wonder whether or not I've put myself in the right camp. I'm not ready to go back down this road. I will not believe until I see him and touch his wounds with my bare hands. And then Jesus appears in the room and he calls Thomas. He says, Thomas, come here. He says, put your fingers here. and Put your hand here. Thomas falls to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. Something changed. At that moment, God vindicated everything that we denied about Jesus. At the resurrection, the only voice that was left that hadn't spoken, the final authority finally spoke. And everything that Jesus ever said was vindicated. And they've got to do reruns in their mind and they've got to think about, well, what did he say? What did he mean when he said that? What did he mean? We were so concerned about what people were thinking. What, what was it all about? What did he mean? And they had 40 days to spend with him to try to puzzle it out. At the resurrection, God's verdict came in. Not the son of a devil. This is my son. And you have shown yourself to belong to a different father when you cast your vote. Your judgment was wrong. His judgment is right. Your justice failed. Your justice is broken. And his justice prevails. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, shining like the stars. And Ephesians 1 says that if you are in Christ, then you are seated there with him in the heavenly realms. So, in believing, do we believe? When Jesus starts getting personal with you, whose camp are you in? 
We can say we believe. I'm all about Jesus. I'll argue theology. I'll get behind. I'll hurl stones. I'll say I'm in the camp. But when he turns to you and says, sinner, you want to be set free? What do you say? Hold on a second, Jesus. I'm not a slave. Is there slavery in your life? Hold on, Jesus. I belong to your camp. Sinner, you want to be set free. What's it going to take? Because the final vote was in. The final verdict was made. There were no other voices to speak. Are you ready to deal with that reality that we manifested that we are exactly who Jesus says we are on the cross and that it's true and that we need a Savior to set us free? Are you ready to let go of all the glory that human beings try to claim claim for themselves? Be humiliated and be glorified by your Father in heaven so that he can raise you up as a true offspring who will shine like the stars? Or will you keep reaching for glory on your own terms, striving, reaching, in service to another master that you are completely blind to? That's the message. So, I ask you, where is Jesus calling us out? Where is he calling you out? Have we gotten used to just belonging to the camp? Is there something still inside of us that he's looking at us and he's saying, you say you're all about me, but I want to set you free. Are you, are you ready to deal with this? Go down the hard road If that's you, if that's where you're at, we'd love to pray with you and work with you through that and just walk with you through that. That's what ACC is all about. We love to walk with each other on this journey of walking in the freedom that Jesus provides. But the beginning is the hardest part because you have to lay aside your glory. If you'd like to respond to this message today, There's going to be some elders up front. If I haven't talked to you and you're an elder, just feel free to come on up front. And I'd love to pray with you if you'd like to get a hold of me or anybody here from ACC or someone you know and just say, this is my struggle and I need to be set free. And only the Son can set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. God, we surrender now our glory to you. Lord, I know that uh, once we have surrendered to you, you claim us as your own. And your power is greater than our hearts that still condemn us, as we read during communion time. But that doesn't mean, Lord, that we still gravitate towards our fleshly slaveries. And God, we know that we need you. 
And especially if there's anyone here who has never taken that initial step or needs to take it again and say, I'm not just about being a bystander, waving a sign, being in the camp. I need to hear his voice. Sinner, be set free. Then, God, I pray that if we're hearing that, that we'd respond to it today, not let the opportunity go by. Pray your Holy Spirit would come now and wash us in a Father's love who claims us as his his own and calls us to a glorious inheritance. We thank you for that free gift. We are broken by what it cost, but we are grateful that you were willing to take it on yourself so that we would know and we would be freed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.